I wanted to touch base with you on a subject that I think is, is um, an element within Christianity that's rarely pointed at or highlighted, yet it is the backdrop to all of what we do. Everybody throughout their lives has this backdrop, and this backdrop is what determines how they go about making absolutely any decision in their life, how they respond to everything in life. And it is the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. And I wanted to title this, The Fear of the Lord in Everyday Life. Amen. The Fear of the Lord in Everyday Life. I love the statement that I saw um, in Doug Wilson's church. They actually have a motto, and the motto is, um, all of Christ for all of life. Because the gospel has to touch every part of who we are. As a spouse, as a parent, as a church member, as somebody who goes to work every morning, it is the gospel that really changes you not on Sunday mornings only, but it changes you even on the road, on your drive to church. <laughs> Amen. So as a Bible teacher, I ask myself, does my theology include, does my theology include scriptures like Romans chapter 11, verse 22? Because I met with a few men that were going through training on, um, in regards to leadership training, and uh, I mentioned to them, you know, it's one thing to have a church that has 150 programs that is theologically skin deep. Then you have other churches that are theologically extremely focused on doctrine as we are with no programs. And you were just wondering which one would you be at? <laughs> which one would appeal to you? Well, of course, it would be the, 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 the church that is very theologically sound and deep and, right? And so it's the healthy church that you want to be a part of. And so, of course, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and have zero going on except for Bible reading. <laughs> so, uh, but we have to put the cart before the horse. We must make sure we don't put the cart before the horse, but put the horse before the cart. <clears throat> and so we have to put the Word of God first. And very, very often when you're a pragmatic church, a program-driven church, you'll find that there are many verses that can't be touched. There are many chapters in the Bible that can't be touched. Like there are very uh, large churches that cannot teach on Romans chapter 1, for instance, right? There are many verses in the Bible people hide away from and steer away from. And I had to ask myself the question, as a Bible teacher, a shepherd of a flock, am I free to teach on verses like Romans chapter 11, verse 22, that says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Or do I only talk about the kindness of God? But the kindness and the severity, severity of God. Can I preach 1 Peter 2, verse 17, that says, Honor all people, love the brethren, fear God. Oftentimes what we do is we want to love God and fear people. But it says, no, no, no. Love people, but fear God. How about teaching Matthew 10, 28? Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him. Why? Because He's able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. How about 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, because of this, we persuade men. When last have I gone out to minister to somebody because I fear the Lord? A well-known yet misunderstood verse is Philippians 2, verse 12. It says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as, in my, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with what? With fear and trembling, both of those, not just the one. <laughs> I fear, but I don't tremble. Somebody said, wait a minute, Jacques. God has not given me a spirit of fear, right? Why are we talking about the fear of the Lord? There ought to be no fear in the equation of my Christianity. God has given me a sound mind. Of power, not of fear. But I want to 
tell you this morning that there's a difference between and a distinction between being scared of God and having the fear of the Lord. Those are two different concepts. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, it says this, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you. Comma. Why? So that the fear of God may be with you. So he's saying, do not be afraid. This test is here so that you may have the fear of the Lord. So yes, that is not a contradiction. That is for us to understand. Let him who have ears and understanding hear. Don't be afraid. This test is here to do what? To bring you into the fear of the Lord. Because when you come into the fear of the Lord, there are fantastic blessings that we know very little of because we don't like to talk about things that don't inspire people immediately. So here we find God's purposes in the fear of the Lord, which are to hate evil and to walk away from sin. This is why we hate evil, and this is why we walk away from sin, is the fear of the Lord. Watch this. Proverbs 8 verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. <laughs> Oftentimes we're just going to run through to the end, of the end of the statement, and we don't realize the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. You oftentimes wonder, like, why is that guy, he's so into the Word of God, but he doesn't act like Jesus at all. He's kind of like, he's, he's kind of like, he seems like he has a problem with so many things in culture, or, yeah, because the fear of the Lord is to hate the evil they see. The fear of the Lord is to hate the evil they do. And then it says in Proverbs 16, verse 6b, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Now, of course, there's a lot to be said about that verse, right? By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. In other words, the one who doesn't keep away from evil does not fear the Lord. This is the reason they don't keep away from evil. And the one that runs from evil, Joseph, it's because he fears the Lord. But the one who likes to dabble is because there's a lack of the fear of God. That is the root problem to their decision-making in life. Moses was saying to the Israelites, don't be scared. Don't be scared. God has come to deliver you with the fear of the Lord, not from the fear of the Lord. He has come to deliver you by means of the fear of the Lord. Just about every single night when I tuck my kids in, this is the one prayer I pray for them. The fear of the Lord fill their hearts. Because them doing the right thing while I'm there is not my concern. It's while I'm not there, <laughs> right? And when, when nobody's watching, the fear of the Lord is there. And that is what keeps a person safe. <clears throat> so yes, the fear of the Lord does deliver you from the fear of man. I have the fear of man only when I do not have the fear of the Lord. But most evidently, the fear of the Lord delivers me from sin in general. So the unbeliever and the believer, however, they do not fear God in the same way. They both fear God, but they don't fear God in the same way. If you say, well, the atheist doesn't fear God at all. Well, of course he does. Why do you think he's got organizations, worldwide organizations, constructed in order to argue the fact that there is a God. But they don't argue the fact that there's no Santa Claus, just that there is no God, because that's a problem to them. Of course, the world fears God. Otherwise, communism wouldn't have had a problem with Christ. But they fear God because it's my commitment and loyalty to the ultimate, the ultimate authority that doesn't allow them to have complete control over me. And so, the believer and the unbeliever, they fear God in different ways. And I think it's worth our time to look at how they fear God in different ways. First is, while the unbeliever's fear of God causes torment, anger, 
The fear of the Lord is a blessing to the believer. Proverbs 28 verse 14 says, How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. How blessed is the man who fears God. He's speaking about fearing the Lord always. He's blessed. But the unbeliever, the one who hardens his heart, which all unbelievers do, will fall into calamity. While all unbelievers harden their heart, all believers are always walking with repentant hearts. Repentant hearts is a sign of a believer. Because repentance is, in fact, if you didn't know this, a gift from God. He grants people repentance. And those to whom He doesn't grant repentance and He doesn't give the gift of faith to them, to those He does not, they harden their heart throughout their lives. And God gives them to their hardened hearts. He allows them to continue what they have willfully chosen. You know, interesting thing I wanted to mention here is while the unbeliever's fear of God causes torment, I wanted to not just say torment, but also anger. Did you know that there's a place... Jesus is talking about where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are going to be two responses in hell. The one is weeping. But there's also going to be a gnashing of teeth. I hate you. So while the unbeliever's fear of God causes torment, the fear of the Lord is a blessing to the believer. Second is... While the unbeliever's fear of God causes dread, the fear of the Lord is a source of delight to the believer. Fearing God is a wonderful thing. It's a relief. It's a blessing. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11 says this. Uh, Nehemiah, to those of you that don't know how to say it. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11 says, O Lord... Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant who delight to fear your name. They delight to fear your name. It's a delight. It's a blessing. Thirdly, we see that while the unbeliever's fear of God makes him cower and hide because he fears God, the believer, on the other hand, his fear of God signifies that he's cared for, he's safe with, and he's secure in Christ. Proverbs 25, 29 verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord, he's safe. That's why you run to God when you have sinned. That's why you naturally run to God. You're a new creature with a repenting heart of faith. Therefore, you run to God because the fear of God causes you to run to Him for safety, for care, and for security. While at the same time, the fear of the Lord to the unbeliever is the guy that goes, hides in the bushes, and covers his shame with leaves. Self-righteousness. So the fear of the Lord is what brings the distinction between the attitude of the unbeliever and the attitude toward God with the believer. Let me say that again. The fear of the Lord is the attitude in the heart of the unbeliever, and that's why he responds to God the way he does. He weeps, and he's anger. He gnashes his teeth. He is tormented. He cowers and he hides. It causes so much dread. It's the aroma of life to the believer, and the gospel is the aroma of death to the unbeliever. And the fear of the Lord is the attitude behind that, response to a perfectly holy God. Now, I looked at this, and the amount, of, the amount of benefits and blessings that belong to the one who fears the Lord is inexhaustible. You know, like when you, when, you, when you buy a car, a certain car, suddenly you see the same car everywhere else on the road. You go like, why is everybody driving the car I just chose to drive? I just chose to purchase. The same thing is true when you come into uh, a subject within Scriptures and you see the sovereignty of God... Suddenly, it's everywhere, Genesis through Revelation. When you see the mercy of God, that He's merciful to whomever He wants to and chooses to, and He shows compassion to whoever He wills, He wills. 
then suddenly you see it everywhere. And now, like when you think about the fear of the Lord, it's everywhere from Genesis through to Revelation. But the blessings of those who fear God is inexhaustible. Psalm 25, 14 says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. Isn't that beautiful? The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. Proverbs 22 verse 4 says, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord. This is the reward of the fear of the Lord. Those who fear God have these rewards. Riches, honor, and life. True riches, honor, and life. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of? Wisdom. wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. I, I always pray for my kids and I say, Lord, make them wise beyond their years. Make them wise beyond their years. Make them wise beyond their years. And they go like, wait a minute. Fill them with the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> right? There is, however, a price to pay for those who harden their hearts and choose to uh, not fear God. And we're going to talk about what it looks like to fear the Lord in a moment. But first I want to show you the benefits and I want to show you uh, the price to pay for those who do not. Proverbs 1, verse 26 and 29 says, I will also laugh at your calamity. This is God speaking. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish comes upon you, then they will call me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but... They will not find me because they did not, because they have hated knowledge, because they have hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. So let's answer the million dollar question. What is the fear of the Lord? What is it? So here's my nutshell answer to this vast and limitless concepts of the fear of the Lord. To the believer... That to this new creature that's in Christ, the fear of the Lord means your, pers your, your perspective and your understanding of God is this. You see and you recognize how powerful He truly is. You recognize that He actually truly is God. He's not a concept. That He is so perfectly holy, you can't look away from Him. You know, when you see something really stunning, you have to slow down and look again, right? There's this building I pass by when I drive down uh, 59, and I'm always like, whoa, look at that. It's amazing. It's just an amazing thing. That's why when you see people walk around downtown and they're from, like, South Africa or something, <laughs> They're like, wow. You go like, watch out, there are cars around you. Like, wow, they can't stop looking at the buildings. You know, it's like the same thing is true when you go to the Grand Canyon, when, you, when you're flying in, an, in a Boeing and you're looking down, you go, wow, look at those snow-capped mountains in Switzerland. It's just absolutely gorgeous. You can't stop staring. And the same thing is, it's like when you see the holiness of God, it's like you can't stop staring at it. It's so captivating when you look at the attributes of God and what it means that God is holy, not only morally perfect, but He's so separate. He's so separate. The separateness of God, that's the first, the primary attribute of holiness. The moral perfection is the secondary attribute of holiness. And that's why when God calls you to be holy, He calls you to be separate from the world, sin, the flesh, evil, darkness, but separate unto Him. That's why He is jealous for you. So the believer or this new creature in Christ understands the fear of the Lord because His perspective of God is so powerful and His perspective of God is so captivating when He sees the holiness of God. And He, is so, he sees God as so thoroughly just. 
Had there been no wickedness in the world, how would you ever know that God was just? Had there been no sin that has ever been committed, to, committed in the world, how would, how would we know that God is holy? We, we would have had nothing to compare it against. And so the, so the believer who, who fears the Lord sees the, these attributes of His power and His holiness and His justice, but he also sees the lovingness, the loving gracious and graciousness and kindness of God toward him. That is what I love about the doctrines of grace. It throws this pitch black darkness in the background so that these, the stars of God's mercy toward you would be so bright and blinding. When you think about the irresistible grace of God, when you think about limited atonement, how could you not fall to your knees and be grateful to God? So the believer who fears the Lord is because he sees God's power, His holiness, His justice, His loving kindness, His graciousness, but he also sees God's supreme glorious position. To the point where this person who sees all this about God, not about how valuable I am and, and how precious I am, not, not that gospel, the other one, the one about God, not the one about man, the one about God, that gospel there is what allows you to be so filled with the fear of the Lord that you dare not run from Him, but to Him instead. Because not only did you see His justice, you also saw His kindness toward you. That's why you run to Him. Not only because you saw how He deals with sin, but because you saw how gracious He has chosen to be to you. That's why you run to Him and not away from Him. He is so inviting and so promising, you shudder and tremble at the idea of drifting from Him. I remember, and, and I, I hope this works, since I didn't think it through. <laughs> but I remember one of the ways, as a single man, I knew um, I need to marry Tina. Now, this is one way, not many. I mean, not all of them, one way. Because there are many ways, many reasons as to what came to mind, and I filtered through everything. But thinking that... Uh, sh that I was going to walk away from him is the thing that really sh jerked my heart. What did I just say? Thinking that I was going to walk away from her, from asking her to marry me and not taking that opportunity, that is what took away my breath. And I thought, how could I, you know, how could I deal with that for the rest of my life if what I did was I said no to that opportunity, right? Um, but so again, I didn't think through that example too clearly, but uh, in, in, the, in this context right here, the believer who sees all this about God, because remember, sin blinds our eyes to all of this. Sin deafens our ear to all of these truths about God. But when God opens your eyes by His mercy and grace, and He opens your ears and you start seeing these things about God, you know, His power and His holiness, His justice and His kindness and His love, His loving heart towards you and His supreme glory, uh, glory, when you see this, the fear of the Lord is what makes you go, oh, how could I not give myself to such a perfect God? He's so inviting, He's so promising, you shudder and tremble at the idea of drifting away from Him. This is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not a commandment to obey. That's why it's Probably not a subject much talked about because it's not, it's not easy to wrap your mind around. It's not something that you have to obey. There's no commandment to obey. That's not the command of the fear of the Lord. When he says to fear me, it's not. It is to have the heart attitude that desires and longs to be obedient. It's not the act of obedience. The act of obedience is the effect. The fear of the Lord is the cause. The fear of the Lord is not the commandment 
or a commandment to obey, it is rather an attitude of the heart that delights in obeying. So today I want to put this concept of the fear of the Lord into a real life context, in, into real life applications. And the first is that the fear of the Lord is a single woman. What is that? There are many things to talk about, but Proverbs 31 verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, that woman shall be praised. So this verse tells me that a God-fearing single woman may be charming and she may be beautiful, but that's not what she finds her value in. On the contrary, she finds value of life, of her life, is not in her charm. The value of her life is in the fact that she trembles before God's Word. That's why she can be confident even on a bad hair day. Because she has found her confidence in the fact that her heart trembles before His Word. You can take everything away from me, but you can't take that away from me. I remember watching a movie of Life of Jesus, and there was a lady, I think it was Martha or Mary or somebody, but in the movie, of course, they took liberty and they showed how she was imprisoned. And then one of the Roman, um, one of the Roman authorities came in and said, I can free you today if you just tell me where Jesus is. And she goes, sitting in prison, she says, I'm already free. I'm already free. You can't free me. So the fear of the Lord as a single woman is that she finds the value of her life in the fact that her heart attitude is that she fears God to the point where she trembles before His Word and obeys His commands. Number two, the fear of the Lord as a single man. Now, we should probably spend five hours on this point, but <laughs> the fear of the Lord as a single man. But since in Genesis 13, verse 13, the Bible says, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against who? The Lord. Yeah, but they don't believe that He exists. Ha ha. Their sin was against Him. You see, single God-fearing men realize that their immoral actions are not only against others, but is ultimately against the God. They work very hard at ignoring, yet he doesn't ignore them. We see King David actually echoes this after Bathsheba and after the prophet comes to him and points out that you are, in fact, the guilty one. He prays this prayer in Psalm 51, verse 4a. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. My sin against you is really my sin against God. Because it wouldn't have been a sin had God not told me not to act like that in your life. When you steal $10 from me, you have sinned against God because He was the one that told you not to, to steal my $10, right? So every time we sin, it is that we have sinned against God. And when we exclude the fact that our sin is against God, ultimately against God's perfectly holy nature, then if we exclude that idea, we do not understand sin for what sin really is. You see, sin is a violation against the nature of a perfectly holy God. I have violated God's nature. I have misrepresented Him, and I've reflected evil instead of His righteousness. And this is what David did not understand when he had that relationship with Bathsheba. He thought he could hide it. Many would say today, well, you know, uh, no harm, no foul. No harm, no foul. Nobody got hurt. I mean, you know, it was all consensual anyway. If nobody got hurt, then how is it a sin? But they do not realize what makes sin so exceedingly evil is not that it was against another human being, but that it was ultimately against a perfectly holy God. And this is where we see Joseph comes in in Genesis 39, verse 9. It says, There is no one greater in this house than I. 
and he has withheld nothing from me. This is Joseph talking about Potiphar, right? After Potiphar's wife is now trying to get Joseph into bed with her. He says, I'm the greatest in this house, and your husband has kept nothing from me <coughs> except for you because you are his wife. Then he says this. He says, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Not Potiphar, but how can I do this evil and sin against God? He knew that his sin was before the Lord. The God-fearing single man assesses his choices, not based on how profitable or unprofitable it is, but based on Is it for God or against God? Am I doing this against God, against His character? Does God delight in my decision? Is God honored by this decision? Whether, whether somebody's hurt or not hurt, doesn't, that's not the point. The point is, does God delight and is He honored in my decision? Number three, the fear of the Lord in marriage. The fear of the Lord in marriage. Remember that you might be married to your spouse, but you are married before the Lord to them. That's why when you got married, you came to the church, right? <laughs> you stood before the minister. And you got married before God with all those witnesses, and that's what they're there for. They are there to witness the vow you make before the Lord. In His presence, you make that vow regarding your spouse. That means you will give an account for your marriage to God, not to your spouse and not to your in-law, but to God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says, And be subject to one another, watch this, in the fear of the Lord. Didn't I tell you, it doesn't matter where you go now, you're going to run into the fear of the Lord. <laughs> we always, I always think, if somebody says, Ephesians 5, it's about marriage. Well, it's about marriage in the fear of the Lord. That's what it's about. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's why marriage can work. If the gospel saves it. And if the gospel does not save it, it won't work. It says in verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But... As the church is subject to Christ in that way, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Then it says, wives, you can now breathe a sigh of relief because here comes husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way Christ gave himself, in that way you give yourself. So my conclusion here is, since he first speaks to the wives, my conclusion is that the real reason the wife cannot submit herself to the one that she's married to, the ultimate root cause for her lack of submission to her husband is because she doesn't fear the Lord. The Lord who told her to be submitted to her husband. Now, you don't have to be submitted to your husband in sin, you know, if he demands that you come and rob a bank with him, of course you don't have to do that, right? But if you are submitted, if you are married to somebody, you are submitted to him in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord. In other words, you're fearing the Lord. In those things you fear the Lord, you submit to your spouse. And the wife who desires and delights in submitting to her husband isn't pleasing her husband, but she's pleasing the Lord because her heart attitude is the fear of the Lord. And if she truly fears the Lord, her heart attitude, the Bible says, is what's going to win him over anyhow. Not her argument. Her heart attitude is what wins him over. Somebody says, yeah, I can submit to my husband, but he's, he's a, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't know economics, <laughs> so, so I can't submit to him. Well, ultimately, even if that is going to be 
um, you are going to live at a different standard. It's better to fear the Lord and live at a different standard than think, well, at least I have more money today because I didn't submit to Him, but at the same time didn't fear the Lord. And we'll see how that works out one day for you when you stand before the Lord, right? <laughs> I hope you followed what I was saying. Just because you could do something better, if it means that you're not going to submit to your husband, rather don't do it better and submit to him because that is the better thing. The reason the husband cannot love his wife as Christ loves the church is why? Not because of who she is. No, because he doesn't fear the Lord who told him to love his wife like Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5, 21, 25, and be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. I love the idea that the gospel is going to succeed. God didn't come up with this plan of redemption. And when he talks about redemption, he's not necessarily only talking about you no longer going to hell in the future, but you're not going to go to heaven. He's not only talking about that, but he's going to redeem you from beginning to end. He's going to redeem your life. He's going to redeem your children. He's going to redeem your marriage, but he's going to do it through the gospel. He's going to, as a matter of fact, save the world through the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and just see how it fails every time. That's not what he said. No, go into all the world and preach the gospel, which is God's power to save. And I love the idea of all of Christ for all of life. Because it is the gospel that saves me from thinking that I don't have to show mercy to other people. You see what I'm saying? It's the gospel that changes my heart, teaching me and demanding that I too show mercy because I have been shown mercy. It is the gospel that demands me to walk in forgiveness with others. Because it's the gospel that demands that since I've been forgiven for more, why can't I forgive others for less? It is the gospel that demands me that I walk in goodness toward others because so much goodness has been shown to me. This one issue has been so real to me. It is the gospel that teaches me to be, uh, to be um, excuse me, patient with people. How long did God take to get you to come around? Hmm? How long did, did He take to bring you around? Yeah? He was patient with you all along. And he actually says, it's not that his promises aren't true, it's that he's patient. Because he doesn't want any to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. Okay, first years, remember? <laughs> For those of you in first year. Who's the any and who's the all? Well, you go to the beginning of the Bible, uh, the beginning of that chapter. It says, now, to the elect, I write this. It's not the will of the Father that any should perish. Any of you, elect, it is not the will of God that any of you should perish, but that all of you should come to repentance. If, I have a, if we have a class, let's say, for instance, Bible school, we have, let's say we have, um, I forget how many we have in first year, but let's say there's a class of 20. And we're all sitting here, and I say, is everybody here? Would, would anybody interpret my words as, is everybody in the whole entire human race here? <laughs> no. If I say, is everybody here, I'm talking about everybody in the category of first-year Bible school students, within that class, within that category of people. And so he says to the elect, it is not the will of the Father that any of you perish, but that all of you come to repentance And in that way, we realize that God is calling all of us to submit to the gospel and obey the gospel. And it doesn't matter how long it takes Him or how patient He has to be with us. He is patient. That's what that verse is talking about. That's why He's patient. He doesn't want anyone in the category that category, to not be saved. So, he was patient with you. 
How can you not be patient with others? Right? And so the gospel actually really works through you in all of your life. And in the same way, it is the gospel. When we understand how Christ gave himself for the church, we know how to be husbands. If we understand that the church is subject to Christ, we know how to be wise. The gospel has to touch every part of our lives. And it's the gospel that saves every bit of our lives. The fourth thing is the fear of the Lord in parenting. The fear of the Lord in parenting. Raising your children not worldly or for worldly success, but for godly purposes. That is parenting in the fear of the Lord. Raising your children not to achieve according to the world's standards, but to fulfill God's purposes. This should be our goal in parenting if and when we fear the Lord. When I drive to church on Sunday morning, sometimes I find, you know, you drive past those soccer fields and everything, and you go like, man, people are so committed. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing how parents would drive their kids around. But it's the fear of the Lord that causes them to drive them around for one thing, but not for another thing. Well, it's the lack of the fear of the Lord, right? It causes them to be so committed to one, but, but completely not committed to another. And so it's very important for us to realize that the parent who has the fear of the Lord raises the children not for worldly success, but for godly purposes. God chose Abraham and chose him to teach his children in his ways. In Genesis 18 verse 19, it says, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. So like Abraham... The person who fears the Lord has complete different goals than the person who does not fear God. It's very evident. Wow, that person really fears the Lord. And that's why you will trust that person because you see them fear God. Spoke with a few men yesterday about what does it make? Why would somebody trust you in ministry? Well, because they see you fear the Lord. Oh, that guy fears the Lord. I know he's not trying to get something out of this equation. He's trying to just honor God. The God-fearing parent's goal for their child is not to be happy, but to be holy. Yet in the world, it's always the other way around. What's, what do you want for your children? I just want him to be happy one day. The goal for their children is not to be embraced by culture, but to be accepted by God in Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. And I think it's getting... Yeah. <laughs> if you would just grab, just grab a blanket and then I'll say, ah, it's probably too cold. <laughs> so we talked about the fear of the Lord in a single man's life and a, talked about the fear of the Lord in a single woman's life. and We talked about the fear of the Lord in marriage and the fear of the Lord in parenting. But I want to end today by talking about the fear of the Lord as a Bible student. The fear of the Lord as a Bible student. Every one of us are Bible students. Every single one of us. That's why you're here today. Well, that's one reason. In Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2, it says this, But to this one I will look. This is God speaking and saying, this is the one I will put my eye on. This is the one I will look to. It's almost like this is the one I will do great things through. You know, when you need something done, you go like, man, I need to, uh, I'm not going to be able to get to, um, uh, to this responsibility. I need to look to somebody who I think is able to. <laughs> Help me out with this, right? This, to this is the one I will look. And I'm not saying that God needs my help. He, it's just that this is the one that he will look to. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Who trembles at my word. The one who is humble and contrite of spirit always trembles at the word of God. 
The person who fears the Lord trembles at His word. There is no argument in that person. You don't have to twist their arm when you look at a verse. It's almost like I feel like the last two years of my life, I've been like trying to twist people's arms. Like, do you see that God is in fact really God? <laughs> that He is really overall? I'm trying to twist people's arms. Like, can you see that all authority was given to Him in heaven and on earth? You see that? That God is in fact God, top of heaven all the way to the bottom of hell. There's nothing, there's not a molecule in all of the universe that is doing its own thing. There's not, there's, there's not, there's not a speck of dust in all of the world just doing its own thing. If it did, then it was greater than God. No, it's God that keeps all things together by His own power. He is God everywhere. That's why we can trust Him. Not just that He's able, but also in His timing regarding our lives. God's timing in your life is in fact perfect. You might be going through a hard time. Let me tell you, God's timing in your life is perfect. And if you want to trust Him, you cannot say, I trust you, God, but I don't trust your timing. <laughs> I trust you, God, but I don't trust that you're testing me. You didn't give me the right test. I trust you, God, but I don't trust that, that you've been making right good decisions regarding my life. Now, please, there are two wills of God. There's the known will of God, which is called the moral will of God, which you hold in your leather-bound Bible. The moral will of God can be disobeyed, and there are consequences connected to me disobeying God's moral known will. That will can be broken. It's called sin. Then there is the sovereign will of God, the decreed will of God, that cannot be broken. You cannot break that will. That is your gender. He chose it for you. <laughs> the family in which you were born. Sorry, Alex, you're a shum. Uh, you can't change that. Your nationality, you can't change it. The time in history in which you were born, you can't change it. The fact that God had mercy on you, His enemy, you can't change that. He's had mercy on you because He chose it, not you. It's the sovereign will of God. He is sovereign. You know what's part of His sovereign plan? The crucifixion of Christ. You know who is part of the crucifixion of Christ? Judas. Yes, God is sovereign. Satan's God's devil. And he plays into God's hands every day. He did at the cross. You go read it for yourself. It says, and they did exactly according to God's purpose. And they who crucified him did exactly according to God's plan. And so, you know, when, when the person who fears the Lord, when they look into scriptures and they see that, and they read Joseph saying to his brothers, what you meant for evil, ha, God meant for good in my life. God meant this, but he meant it for good. Yes, God is sovereign over all. But when you break the known will of God and you deal with a consequence based on that, that's not God's sovereign will in your life. You know, it's like that's you breaking His moral will and there are consequences to that. So here we see in Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2, but to the one I will look, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. He looks at it, the word of God and he goes, I guess you are God. I guess what you said is true. I guess I'm wrong and you're right. I guess I will be humbling myself to this truth. <laughs> I don't understand this. Oh, it's okay. There's a lot we don't understand about God. Can you imagine that? Nobody would stand before God and say, I know everything about you. Everything. I know everything, how you do everything, your plans. For 
I know your, your ways are higher than my ways, but I've got the mind of Christ. Your ways are higher than mine. Your thoughts are higher than mine, but I have the mind of Christ. I know all things. Nobody says that, but they, but they certainly act that way sometimes. It's like, well, I don't understand that. Well, nobody does. There are mysteries, right? And uh, if I could fit God into my little brain, then he's not big enough, okay? If your God fits into your brain perfectly, guess what? Is the wrong God, <laughs> right? So there are places where you have to say, God, I trust you. I trust that you're good. He drowned the whole world. Women and babies. He drowned, he flooded the world and saved only Noah. How could he be good? Oh, he says he's good. That must have been a good thing. Because he's good. Can you trust him? That's the question. He crushed his own son. Cosmic child abuse. I believe he's good. I believe he's good. The word says so. And I fear the Lord to the point I tremble at his word. I don't fight it. If somebody has to twist your arm to trust the scripture, it's not because you have higher knowledge and a greater intellect. No, you have a lesser fear of the Lord. That's the problem. You say that again because, you know, that tends to happen to all of us. You, you, you know, the, the person who thinks they know the most is the person who's been to college the first three weeks. Like, I know everything. I know everything about Marx. I know everything about, you know. No, wait a minute. The more you learn, the more you're going to realize how little you truly know. And it's never truer than when you study scriptures. So all I'm trying to say is that when somebody argues a scripture, it's not because they have greater understanding. It's because they have lesser of the fear of the Lord in them. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that we're able to honor your word. Lord, I pray, if anything, if anything other than salvation, Lord, that you will fill the hearts of every person in this congregation with the fear of the Lord. Not something for us to actually obey, but it's for us to have an attitude, a position of the heart, a heart that fears you to the point where we tremble, tremble in blessing, in delight before your word. Every word you speak, Lord God, that we will know this was spoken by the Almighty, the Sovereign, the Holy, the Just, the Loving and the Kind, that it's you who speak that to us. And I thank you, Father God, as you have said, your word will last forever. Heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will remain. That you have exalted your word above yourself. And that next time we open up your word, the Bible, that we will read it and tremble in delight in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Did you get something out of the word? Amen. Amen.